Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Martin, the Ramblin' Man, Willis. Ramblin', yes, on the road again. Yep, once again, you're always out there and about there. Well, it's because I live in a remote area in, in Maine where, you know, you have to go somewhere to be somewhere. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm doing today. <laughs> you have to go somewhere to be somewhere. Yeah, I get it, I though, mean, actually. It, yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, I'm not far from some civilization, Good. but it is uh, it is pretty remote. You know, it's three hours, three to four hours to get to Boston, and that's where I do all my work. Wow. So that's that's what's going on. Yep, what a commute. I, yeah, too much. Anyway, uh, let's see. We've got UFOs to talk about, lots of stuff to talk about. I had, have you had Dr. Michael Masters on your show? I believe you have. Oh, I have. What a nice guy he is. I really, really enjoy uh, talking to him. Mm hmm. Yep. This is the first time I've had him on the show. I wanted to wait till after the UFO Congress because he is, uh, was one of the speakers at the 2019 International UFO Congress. And you can get his DVD on the UFO Congress store. You can also watch him. I'll make sure and get this up uh, by the time of the show, but you can see him on the video on demand at video.ufocongress.com or you could go to ufocongress.com and you can click the link for the videos on demand and see him there. But uh, there are several videos up on the video on demand. But who is this Michael Masters? I'm so excited about his topic because... I really feel and have felt that this is a topic that should be given um, more consideration in the UFO field. And uh, that is, you know, his lecture title was, Could Aliens Simply Be Us But From the Future? And uh, he actually has a book out there on this called Identified Flying Objects, A Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomena. And there are a couple phrases in there in particular that are important, such as, you know, the multidisciplinary scientific approach. Uh, because like a lot of scientists have said, and a lot of researchers have said, you know, um, people that are part of the Scientific Co- Coalition for UAP Research, uh, you know, group with like Robert Powell and Rich Hoffman have talked about, is that really you need a whole lot of different scientists uh, to look at all the different perspectives. And including his, which is, could aliens be from the future? Now, he already is uh, credentialed and uh, to speak about, uh, he has expertise uh, to speak about this. He's a professor of biological anthropology. So, uh, he looks at it from the perspective of, okay, here's the evolution of human beings. And mm-hmm. if you were to continue that evolution, you know, we would look a lot like uh 
aliens that are described. Uh, he also gets into the physics and, you know, okay, if these are people from the future, what would the physics be and what would a device uh, be like that would be able to get us in the past? These are just some of kind of the bigger uh, categories of topics that he talks about. But when he breaks all of these things down, it's extraordinary in his research that he finds so many correlations and simul- simula- you know, similarities to what people describe to what you know the science shows would be kind of humans, uh, or the technology, the evolution of the technology, and the biology. So uh, it's fascinating. I absolutely, I highly, mm-hmm. highly recommend people watch his lecture because it's very rich in information. In this interview, we break down some of that, but there's so much, and all of it, I think, is really important, um, and it makes his argument stronger even than I expected. Uh, so I really think people need to pay attention to this. I can't stress how important I think this is because really, I really feel looking at his information, it's difficult to dismiss this perspective. Um, and I think it's just as valid a possibility, perhaps not for all of the phenomena, but for much of it, then, uh, but it's just as valid as the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I agree 100%. I didn't think I would before I started talking with him. Um, but I'm telling you what, he makes such a great argument. And by the way, I, I got to hang out with him one night out in Phoenix. And uh, we sat and talked for hours and hours. And what a what a nice gentleman he is. He's, he's really uh, down to earth and very easy to talk to. But he is also highly intelligent. His father was a veterinarian. Um, he had this, you know, interest of of his study from early on and uh and he's he he makes the best argument for it that of anyone i've ever heard he said it's not unique to him it's not you know something that someone else has not um tried to um attend to in the past but um his his thoughts and the way he's thought it all the way out all the way down to the skin pigment everything is uh, really very very interesting yeah yeah it's all really great he's He's really funny, too. I mean, he comes across as a total nerd. He's a professor, and, and he is, I mean, because um, he's super smart, and he's really into the details. But, uh, yeah, actually, you catch him on the side, and he's really funny. Uh, yes. And he's a really cool dude. Like, he, he's in a rock band. Um, he's just a cool dude. He is. Yep. Awesome. So, well, yeah, so that's the interview it. coming up that people will be able to check out. I think you're going to... R- greatly enjoy it i did and i can't wait to talk to him more and i think uh, i'm so excited that he has you know kind of come out and felt uh comfortable uh writing this book and doing these lectures because i think it's really important yes i want to say something i don't know if you mentioned this on your your show but i said to him when i was uh, in phoenix hanging out with him and i said well what do you think about um scientists you know not taking any of this seriously he goes shame on them and I thought that was like really, really good. And he said that he's actually approached a few, I can't remember their names, but he's approached a few people and said, what's wrong with you? Why don't you at least take a look at this, mm-hmm. you know, topic? So, you know, good for him for that, being an yep. advocate, basically. Yep. Yep. That's, yeah. And it's a great argument. I mean, Heineck would make that argument, uh, essentially. He wouldn't put it as bluntly, uh, but uh, I think it deserves to be 
put bluntly like that. Uh, but he would point out that, you know, you're not doing your duty as a scientist by ignoring phenomena you can't explain just because it can't. And according to, you know, your unjustified conclusion is it can't happen. Um, right. So exactly. Luckily, it seems things are changing, though. Yeah. Yeah. You see it moving that way a little bit. Sure. Yep. It sure is. So. Uh, one of the reasons things are changing is because of all the UFOs in the news. Lots of positive movement forward. Of course, the government being more open, a bit more open, at least to the idea. And uh, mm-hmm. and so it's really exciting. So uh, I'm assuming that some of the news that you may have for us is along these lines. Well, actually, it's negative the other way around. But oh. I do want to address um, the negative part of it. And okay. uh, and I don't want to say really negative. It's it's just it's about Edward Snowden. Um, mm. This is uh you know th- this came out through CNN uh, that he searched the CIA's networks for proof that aliens exist, and here's what he found. And you know he goes um, through it. You know that they they start out this article as um, you know for all the. Um, Area 51 stormers, chemtrail believers, and climate change deniers. So he's kind of like this article kind of groups the the you know people that have um, thoughts about UFOs in kind of that whole fringe Conspiracy. area again. It kind yeah. of like a step backwards in a way. And it said Edward Snowden has searched the depths of the U.S. intelligence networks and can report the conspiracy theories are not true. As a former employee of the CIA and contractor for the National Security Security Agency, Snowden had access to some of the nation's most closely held secrets. And like all curious mind, like any curious mind with access to the CIA's version of Google might do, he went to search for the answers to some of the society's most pressing questions. And it turns out the U.S. government is not aware of any intelligent extraterrestrial life, he says. For the record, this is, quote, as far as I could tell, aliens have never contacted Earth, or at least they haven't contacted U.S. intelligence. Soden writes this in his recent memoir, memoir, uh, Permanent Record. So I want to address this for a a couple of, um, in a couple of different ways. First of all, um, I don't know if he had, uh, if any of this, if any of this information was part of the intelligence, if it could be compartmentalized where he couldn't, he couldn't easily access. That's, you know, one question. Um, or um, if there was information, um, you know, according to Chris Mellon, when I talked to him, you know, a few years ago, he said he wouldn't be surprised if anything was um put out into the private sector so it couldn't be part of um you know an intelligence a congressional um subpoena or anything you know in the future just to get it in you know kind of like uh in the secret server type of thing you know to get it uh, away and protected you know and i'm not saying that any of these things have indeed happened and i'm not saying that edward Snowden was wrong in his search, and and he's wrong by his thoughts on what he found. I'm just saying that it shouldn't be considered a closed case, in my opinion, and that it's possible that the information is there, hard to find, or the information is in a different, um, you know, compartment, so to speak. Yeah, I agree thoughts? with you. Uh, he, you know, from what I understand, the the information that he revealed 
was not all that high level. Um, it was classified information, but you know there are levels of classification, and it were they the uh, information he had access to um, was not some of the higher level stuff, but still, you know, stuff we didn't want to share. Um, because mm-hmm. as we saw from the releases, you know, it was much of it was embarrassing, um, to the United States. Yes. So, uh, and I actually watched his interview with Joe Rogan on this topic and he was essentially telling Joe, I know you want there to be aliens, but at least he couldn't find it. But he said something interesting about conspiracies. He's like, I'm not saying I don't want people to to think that I'm trying to say conspiracies aren't real because they are. I mean, all of this were conspiracies, right? And he was talking about how, you know, practically everything, there's so many conspiracies. And what he means by that is people conspiring to do something that they may not want others to know about. Um, That's kind of how things work. That happens a lot. That's why we have NDAs. That's why we have... um, But... So that was his point, and his point was that at least he couldn't find anything on any of those topics, and he believed, at least when it came to aliens, that he feels like he sniffed around enough where he would have seen some sort of information were there to be any. Um, but, you know, uh, that's the thing. As one person, I, I you, know, you can talk to many experts uh, on this when it comes to uh programs and people have uh, talked about well you know if there's special access programs then he might not know about them and and that's true you know black projects essentially but mm-hmm. other people make the point that he also didn't come up with a tip he didn't know about a tip so uh you know is if that he, right because yeah. um because he he what has he been in russia now for what is it five years four or five years so this is so pre Prior to when he um, left and went to Hawaii, wherever it was, or China, um, with all that information, that was uh, ATIP was in place, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, ATIP's been mm-hmm. around since 2007, and uh, you know he yeah. apparently didn't wow. wasn't aware of ATIP, uh, and ATIP wasn't even really uh, some of the information's classified. From what I understand, but it's not really, you know, much of it wasn't, um, you know, we're getting some of it. We've gotten some of it in uh, in FOIA requests. And also, you know, the, the letter that Reed had put out where he requested that ATIP get special access program uh, uh, certificate, or I mean, uh, essentially getting that level, they were denied. So... Yeah, so those are some good points. Um, I think that it, t- to me, it is telling that he found that. It shows that um, at that level, there's not a bunch of conversation going on. I think it shows mm-hmm. personally more along the lines of kind of the model that uh, most of the people in the government have have kind of given us. Uh, including to the stars is that, you know, there's, it's kind of like, and this is what I've gotten for a long time. This is what John uh, Alexander has always said. That's right. Is that the UFO issue is kind of a hot potato. It's ignored. They totally ignore Mm -hmm. it. Um, There have been, you know, little investigations here and there at even Harry Reid when he started ATIP, 
they wanted to hide any inquiries they put into it because they didn't want to be embarrassed by it. So uh, Harry Reid was able to successfully keep the project under the radar. So any other projects, uh, it must not be too difficult for them to keep them under the radar if Harry Reid was able to do it with ATIP. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he might not know. It's interesting information, but like you said, it's certainly not conclusive. But uh, I can see the tendency of some journalists to go there to kind of pretend like, you know, oh, yeah, there must not be anything to this because Snowden couldn't find anything um, because that's a fun, easy way for them to get some to write a story. Whereas, you know, it's not really no, it's completely a- accurate of the situation. If this uh, this story came out the day after that I uh, debated uh, Seth Shostak <laughs> from SETI uh, on UFOs. Now, if it had come out the same day, um, he would have used that as a tool. I know 100%. Well, there's your proof. Exactly. <laughs> that they don't exist. So, and it will be used as a tool. And, you know, one of the things I didn't even think about that you brought up is there are different levels of a classification of, you right. know, uh, some of something being classified. What is it? The ultra, uh, whatever they call it, the the top classification i'm not really sure what it's called but um he did not have access to any of the higher end classified uh documents is that is that so well not all he did have some i mean he did have from what i understand uh he did have um access to some programs because he was working on certain things that he had clearances for uh, that, uh, but not all, like he had clearances for some of the stuff that he was really concerned about and he revealed, such as the companies, you know, um, gathering information on Americans. And that's what his problem was, uh, that he, you know, felt that that was all illegal. It technically was, and that, you know, people need to know about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, but just because you have, you know, access, you're not going to have, he even makes the point to say there's a big deal that uh, to not have others know what you're working on, that it's a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, that if yes. you have top secret clearance, that you not share with other top secret clearance holders what you're doing, that they don't ask exactly. each other and that the, they don't share that information. The need to know type of thing. I've talked exactly. to my brother-in-law who had a high uh, clearance level at Los Alamos Labs and he basically told me the same thing. Right. You know, that uh, they wouldn't, you know, even though someone, you know, there was, I forget how many thousands of people work there, but even though someone had the same, um, you know, uh, clearance, that they would not discuss, they were not a- able to discuss anything that didn't include the need to know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And there are, you know, yeah, there are, like, SAP projects um, that are off the books. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. that are, for instance, not mentioned in the budget. And so, yeah, you know, those are going to be very important. Those are going to be things that very limited numbers of people know about. So, it's possible that there are, but it doesn't even really matter because in the to the stars scenario let's say to the stars what they've revealed or what they've gotten or i should say a tip what you know kind of the what 
Elizondo has shared, even if that is all there is, uh, it demonstrates there was an active investigation and is an ongoing active investigation and now increased investigations, it seems, from the Navy of UFOs. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, that argument that used to be made that the government doesn't take it seriously is now blown out of the water. That's Uh, right. Should people like Shostak make that argument? Obviously, people did see uh, there was was a need to, to look into this stuff. Uh, for instance, uh, during this um, talk I had with Seth, he said something about, you know, he, he has friends that know ex- exactly what, have looked at those videos and know exactly what they are. You know, and, you know, he had he had all the, the answers. And then he said, what, uh, I think the best zing that I was able to do in that whole talk, well, because he said to me, what in the UFO world is the evidence that you could put in the Smithsonian? I said, I just said to him, well, could you put dark matter in the Smithsonian? And, and uh, so anyway, he said, I forgot what he said, something about the rotation of the universe or something. I don't know. But anyway, it was. Uh, <laughs> it's, but you uh, make a great point. And, you know, his argument about the rotation of the universe or whatever he decided to spew was is a hypothesis. It's not even that. It's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a hypothesis. It's, it's he's giving you evidence that there's a mystery. He's doing yeah. the same thing that we're doing in UFOs. Exactly. Is that there's yeah. a there's evidence for an unknown phenomena that's trying to be described. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a such a great question that you asked, and uh, I think it. You know, I can't wait to listen to the debate because I haven't yet, and I'm so excited to listen because it sounds like you did an excellent job. That question you asked is an excellent question because. Yeah, there's an, a, a phenomenon that's observed. We don't know what it is. We place this term dark matter on it. Even the the lady who uh, was the first to identify the phenomena of the expanding universe mm. does not believe in dark matter. She doesn't believe that's the answer. Wow. Yeah. Even the scientists who discovered that. So he may be saying, oh, well, this is why there's dark matter. Well, the scientists who discovered the phenomena that uh, is answered by this this an- this potential of the existence of dark matter doesn't believe in that so uh it it's exactly the same this is a scientific question that needs to be answered and why they don't want to take on that challenge is an interesting question i don't understand i think yeah. that he's worried that uh and it may be more of a marketing PR thing. They may be worried that it will take a lot of the energy or focus away from them because it's more exciting to look into, you know, more potentially alien evidence. I don't know. But yeah. uh, hopefully that's what happens. And that is slowly what's happening. Um, we just need more science to take uh, this seriously. And uh, exactly that may be frustrating for him. But uh, hey, <laughs> Things change, and I think, you know, if he was smart, he would get in front of this and they would uh, embrace the whole idea of all of these unanswered questions uh, because then they could play a pretty big role in it instead of just kind of frustratingly give some uncharacteristically terrible unscientific answers to these questions. Well, I'm surprised, you know, Seth actually hasn't retired. I had no idea he was 76 years old. Um but he's still at it, and um, I don't think he 
feels like he's going to be going away anytime soon. But I do believe that, um, you know, if someone fits into his shoes, it's probably going to be along the same line. You know, I mean, for instance, they have to have a drive, a real serious drive constantly for funding of right. SETI, for one. So um, who knows what they'll be getting in there, but it would be uh, difficult for them to do if they were uh, citing um, on the side that, uh, you know, UFOs could have something to it. I, I think it would be tougher for them to, to get their funding. Yeah, maybe. Yep, there are a lot of concerns, um, a lot of real-world issues. It, it's mm-hmm. it's always very complicated. It's more than black and white. It's always, you know, it's really hard. And we have to understand all of these little issues. It may seem boring or it may seem um, not as exciting or, or sexy as talking about the craft or the creatures. But uh, if we truly want to understand the nuances of how this affects our culture uh, and how we can more profoundly and, and uh, you know, affect a change in culture, uh, then we all need to really understand all of these various nuances. So um, that's what mm-hmm. that's what's exciting about all of this. That's what's exciting about, you know, I think the the kind of niche that maybe you and I or some others are in here and looking and examining on some of all of that, because we also then get kind of insight into the fruits of those efforts, um, which is really Mm -hmm. exciting over the years because there has been so much progress in, uh, you know, the public and the mainstream accepting this topic. I think so too. It's a real good time. I'm glad I'm around during this time of it. Yep. You know, I really, really am. How are we doing on time? We've gone over, so we better end it here. But it was a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining again. Uh, Absolutely. My pleasure. And let's go ahead and get to our interview with Michael Masters right after this break. I am happy to welcome to the show for the first time, Michael Masters. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Our pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, you had a fascinating lecture at the recent 2019 International UFO Congress, and it was something I was really looking forward to. It's a topic I love, and, you know, someone with your qualifications and actual, uh, biological anthropologist, you know, speaking on this was very exciting for me uh, because this is kind of an area I feel isn't pursued enough, and and we'll get into that. But uh, I guess what was it like for you, given your background? Uh, Do you do lectures on other topics, or you're a professor, so you do them often? Yeah, uh, every Tuesday and Thursday for about three hours. I give lectures on various topics and always uh, related to anthropology. I teach a number of different classes from intro anthropology up to upper level uh, macroeconomic, um, economic anthropology. I also teach forensic anthropology and it's uh, kind of a fun class, a lot of osteology and anatomy, and we bury a skeleton out behind campus here and have the students dig it up and investigate mm-hmm. a murder scene. So, um, yeah, and then I also go to academic conferences. The big one in my field is the American 
American Association of Physical Anthropologists meeting. Um, and I just submitted a couple abstracts to present down there in L.A. in April, I believe it is. So, yeah, um, doing a lot of lectures, both in and out of the UFO topic. Um, and But it, it's great, too, to bring in the anthropology side. A lot of what I talked about in my lecture at the, uh, the UFO Congress was very much related to what I talk about in my classes. There's a lot of overlap there for sure. Mm-hmm. And what was it like? I mean, were you kind of nervous to bring, uh, to come talk to a, a UFO conference audience? Uh, did you know what to expect? Um, well, I had just given a talk at the MUFON 50th anniversary uh, meeting about a month before. And that I didn't really know what to expect going into that one. That was my first big conference um, talking about this stuff, and and it was interesting. There was a, a very stark divide between the audience and the other people at the conference who were presenting and doing panels and things. the The audience was tremendously receptive, and there was just a great big crowd that gathered after the talk and a lot of interest. Um, but it's just so much uh, skepticism and I, I would say bias on behalf of a lot of the other presenters. Um, it, it was strange. There was even, <laughs> even a sort of a confrontation, I guess you could say, in one of the panels that I was on. Um, somebody just said something very blatantly bias and then took the microphone away and set it on the other side of him so I couldn't even respond to what he said um, but but it was very different coming down to Phoenix for the International UFO Congress it was it was much more open-minded um, just a really great experience so it, it was tremendously refreshing for me coming from one to the other because um, I, I was ready to to be met with with criticism and skepticism again but it was quite the opposite there was a really just great energy and and a sense of camaraderie and collaboration um at that particular event so so yeah i was a little nervous but for probably different reasons than most people would probably think well it's a very interesting observation especially right now because uh you know at the congress of course we do that's one of our our Deciding factors are people who essentially are very professional, um, work well with others, and that's actually more, almost more important than their topic, at least that their topic is something they're honestly looking at, you know? It may be wild or fringe, but if it, as long as, you know, they're not deceiving people and they're honestly, you know, trying yeah. to figure things out, that's, that's what we're looking for. But in this field right now, you're kind of a disruptor and there's other disruptors and it's interesting to see that I think what happens is when you're challenging others' worldviews, especially those who are kind of on the stage professing and trying to convince people of their worldviews, then yeah. uh, I, I could see why those people in particular who are trying to push their thing are, are going to be a little more, um, uh, they're going to feel a little more. Uh, yeah. infringed upon by someone right. like you coming in and then come across as combative and mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, no, and it's funny too because I, I realized that you know I'm, but but it's different too because I'm not coming into it trying to proclaim some sort of truth. I'm just saying I think we need to look seriously at the question of time travel and human evolution and cultural evolution and could these individuals be us and putting forth as much scientific evidence for that as I can, mm -hmm. but not discounting any other theory. I think with a, a phenomenon this complex, we need to consider everything and especially valid hypotheses related to this phenomenon. So yeah, it's unfortunate when people see me as a disruptor because I'm not trying to take away from anything anybody else is doing. I'm just trying to offer up what I believe is a, a rather parsimonious explanation for what's going on. But I also understand that that knee-jerk reaction to it. Um, I, I think a lot of them sort of expected me to, I, I guess, kind of cower and hide. But mm -hmm. what, what, what I've been met with from members of the UFO community, only certain members, a lot mm -hmm. of people are very open-minded. Um, but, but it's nothing compared to what we face in, in academia. I mean, mm -hmm. people are always at each other's throats and trying to cut each other down. And, and especially in, in paleoanthropology, if you look at any of the, the, the research and the just all out brawls that mm -hmm. form over questions of new hominin species and how we designate certain species and tool types, it's, it's brutal. So coming from that, um, really, I've I've got pretty thick skin, so I'm not I'm not worried about it. it. Doesn't bother me at all. But it is it is nice to see um, and to interact with really open minded people as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other you know thing about your talk is that uh, which can be I guess you know a bit more challenging for some, but uh, which is so appreciated. I of course was excited to hear someone talk uh, on the topic, but. Little did I know how thorough, how complete, uh, and how much work you did. It's astonishing. In fact, you know, I really want to hit on a bunch of points today, but it would be impossible to hit on everything because you looked at this from so many angles and I think found some, in every, you know, position that you looked at this from, uh, you found credible information that supports the possibility yeah, I mean, one thing I've I've tried to do, like it says in the title of the book, it's a, a multidisciplinary scientific approach. Mm -hmm. If I just looked at it from the human evolution side, I'd be l missing the opportunity to to tie together a lot of things that also help explain this phenomenon. So, yeah, I I, I really try to uh, bring into it evidence and and not just you know something that came out and popular mechanics or something, but real peer-reviewed scientific research from mm -hmm. academic journals, from astrobiology and astronomy and physics, in addition to those scientific studies from anthropology. Because I think really coming at it from all of these different fields and, and providing a holistic approach and understanding for this phenomenon, it's, it's going to take that. It's going to take a lot of people working together, too, across different disciplines. I can only do so much as an anthropologist with some background and training in physics and astronomy, but not that not being my primary field of study. I, I can put things out there, but not to the same extent that a physicist could or an actual astrobiologist. So I'm hoping that that as an academic presenting these things, 
that, that we can bring more people in, more, more scientists, more academics from those various fields who can help build upon um, what I've sort of touched on from these different areas and, and really try to move it forward collectively. Mm-hmm. So this started with your book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomena, which is making me chuckle because I <laughs> so screwed that. Oh, I remember. That was pretty funny. I'll let you finish the story there. I, I mean, you know, you get so tired. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, kind of running on empty at the beginning of the conference because setting it up is, is enough. But yeah. I'm usually able to flow through pretty well, but... My brain just was struggling so much when I did your introduction, and I couldn't believe, you know, and I get prepared, and I'm, I'm ready, but the title of your book just would not, for some reason, sit well in my brain. So, yeah, yeah I just really kind of stumbled through that. And oh, I thought it was great. I, it was a great way to, to introduce the, the talk, because I, I like to hit the stage with a lighthearted mm-hmm. um mentality and and that's a good way to start with a little chuckle and keep that going so no i I thought it was actually uh really fortuitous good because i i figured you know you seem to have a great sense of humor so i figured he hopefully it doesn't i don't think he'll mind too much where some people might have got real upset so no i thought it was great so thank you for that i apologize for screwing up the book but it all started (laughs) with the book so what uh, how did you come up with the idea to actually write a book on this? Um, well, I was actually very young. I was eight years old. Wow. Um, and I my I learned about a, a UFO encounter my dad had before I was born. And I just heard him telling the story. And um, uh, not long after that, he, he got communion by Whitley Strieber. And um, I, I remember seeing the cover of the book uh, back then. I think they might change the cover since, but it had this sort of your archetypal alien figure on it with the big head, the big eyes, the small face. And, and I just kind of had this, this mental image that I've used on, on various things on my website and in the book. In chapter one, it shows sort of a simplified version of this, but just an early hominin form, a modern human form, and then this alien form. And it just sort of made me wonder if there could be a connection there. And and what's really interesting about it, I haven't mentioned this before because it's just something that has occurred to me recently, but um, I I have been contacted by quite a few people, even just a little comment on Facebook or Twitter, uh, where people tell me they've had the same idea and without reading the book or knowing where it came from for me, saying that they were eight years old, when they thought of this too and i thought that's just a really funny coincidence that so many people were the same age when the same sort of thought occurred and i'm sure it's just a coincidence but uh it's been really funny to see that um and in the last few months people just reaching out and saying hey i've thought of this too i think it makes a lot of sense and i was i was eight when i thought of this Hmm. i don't know it's just uh kind of a funny thing that i've noticed lately so you've been into the whole idea and thinking about it for since you were a kid yeah i mean it's it's why i went to school for physics um initially uh during my undergrad years and then switched to anthropology uh, about halfway through i think i was a junior late sophomore in college um no I, I knew i wanted to pursue it over the long term and i knew in order to do it right and to really be able to understand it myself and to be able to communicate about it to others that i needed to have a pretty 
broad um, and deep knowledge of the different aspects of this phenomenon. So, yeah, it's really been a lifelong pursuit in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I guess throughout your academic career as well, you've you've given it thought. I have, yeah. I didn't talk about it much um, just because of the stigma associated mm-hmm. with it. And I, I feel that fortunately that's finally starting to change. Um, so you weren't was, the weird kid in the back of the class raising no, your head and asking no. about aliens all the time? No, nobody <laughs> even knew I was there. I mean, alone with or with friends, you know, mm-hmm. all my friends knew what I was doing and why I was doing it. But in an academic setting, I don't feel like I was pulling the wool over anybody's eyes or anything. Mm -hmm. I was just there to learn things that I needed to know to be able to do what ultimately I wanted to do. Um, But within, you know, every every project I worked on, every dig I went on, I was just doing things in the same way anybody else was. Um, But, but deeper down and, you know, within, the recesses of my mind, I was always sort of thinking about um, thinking about all of it in the context of this extra tempestrial model, the, the, the possibility that they're just our, our distant descendants coming back through time. Um, so, and especially it was cool going on digs and working in museums, holding the ancestors of our species, 3.5 million year old ancestors in my hands and uh, just the fossilized skulls of of really distant ancestors, the tools they made. um, It really puts it in perspective and and gave me a a really good sense of just how much more we could learn if we had time travel technology now as modern paleoanthropologists that we, we wouldn't have to just hold these broken fragmented pieces of the past. We could just, uh, look at them, observe them, combine cultural anthropology with uh, biological anthropology and get a much deeper sense of what we were really doing beyond just the material culture and, and the fossilized evidence. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been fun. I, I have no regrets about picking the anthropology side of things because in addition to all of the opportunities to travel, it's just a really interesting field just to look at humans you understand so much more about our behaviors and our our political and economic interactions uh, from studying the very long history of these things and how how we got to be the way we are today and and looking at the past. I think it's a really important field in general. So I'm I'm really happy that uh, I I decided to study aliens, I guess, because I I really enjoyed being an anthropologist and uh, still do. Well, it shows that, you know, you've been thinking about this for a long time because, you know, you have so many things that you touch upon and and we'll start to get into some of these. But a little bit, uh, it seems like the beginning of your argument is, you know, uh, essentially we're seeing these craft uh, that seem to be advanced technology uh, and, you know, figuring out what could these be. Uh, A lot of people feel um, and some people argue, you know, if you apply Occam's razor, that uh, extraterrestrial, advanced extraterrestrial civilization uh, would be the best hit. However, you're arguing that, uh, and you justify that argument, you know, throughout your lecture, that uh, that the possibility of humans from the future is just as, if not more likely, mm-hmm. uh, than extraterrestrials from a, another civilization. And so maybe... Uh, for instance, because uh, either one is a stretch, 
you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that at least you and I could argue that, and I think other listeners would would agree, especially those um, scientific minded. And this is a problem that scientists such as those with SETI uh, lay out as an issue: is that it's just really difficult. And one of the um, difficulties is the actual physics of it. Uh, the distances are so far. Yeah. Um, well, in the context of, of Occam's razor and the principle of parsimony, mm-hmm. I, I would I would definitely advocate that this extraterrestrial model is more parsimonious, especially compared to the extraterrestrial model, it, and not even outside of the the vast distances and the issues of time dilation and traveling those distances. And um, it, we know we're here. We are here. We have very good evidence that we exist on this planet and have for a long period of time. So instead of saying that we're looking for something elsewhere that we don't know whether that exists or not, instantly, this is a simpler explanation because we are here and we have evolved and we have changed morphologically and culturally. And if those same changes continue into the future, we are likely to have more advanced technology than we have today. We're likely to have more rounded neurocrania and smaller more retracted faces and larger eyes and less body hair and all of these things that are so ubiquitously described in in instances of close encounters we are likely to have those same traits just based on six million year evolutionary trends with us on this planet so already it's it's a simpler more parsimonious explanation because it's talking about something that's tangible now that we can see and observe but the question of extraterrestrials um yeah there's there's the issue of the distances between solar systems the unlikelihood that we would have an advanced humanoid species one that's so similar to ourselves with bipedalism and the same characteristics that we have in our neurocranium and our postcranial anatomy that they would evolve those same traits at the same time on a planet close enough to us that we would have mutual contact and the opportunity for visitation or that they would do all of these things they would find us and then not even make their presence known not say hey we're here uh we're from this solar system and we wanted to be friends that that's that's never happened it's always this sort of covert very elusive sort of interaction which would make more sense in the context of time and potential disruptions or over complications that can happen when you connect different periods of time so uh, yeah I, I would very much stand by that that it is uh in the context of occam's razor uh, a simpler explanation which all makes a lot of sense and it continues to make even more sense when you break some of this stuff down so in particular the the biology um the for instance you go over the bipedalism and how influential that has been on affecting kind of modern humans uh but including you know the shape of our head and the size mm-hmm. of our head and the, the the shape of our face and uh how if you took people in the past and you look at people today uh this and if the trend continues on the effects that our bipedalism has had then in the future our characteristics that are more like what we report as as aliens looking like, in particular little 
gray guys with the big eyes and the big heads that mm -hmm. we will continue to look more like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is I really tried to avoid any sort of speculation about what might happen between now and then in our future. And, and I've, I've heard this a lot. And back when I was a kid, you know, drinking some beers, uh, talking about things about living in space or having to live underground or what might do this. But, but really that's just speculation. There's no way to know what will shape our future evolutionary history. But in looking back, that we don't have to speculate. We can see these long-term trends and understand how they how they transpired over the last six million years since we became bipedal. And you're right, it, it is the fact that we stood upright. If you look at chimpanzees, our closest living relative on this planet, they remained quadrupedal and they never developed big round skulls and the ability to use their hands to make tools in the same way we do. They, they also make and use tools, but it's very simple. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that one of the main reasons we are so intelligent, we have such big brains, is simply because we stood up and our heads had to rotate down in order to see where we were going in line with the horizon. And that caused a flexing of our basal cranium uh, where it, it sort of, uh, became a more acute angle essentially between the anterior and the posterior cranial base and then that opened up a lot of space on the top of our skulls where a bigger brain could grow and and then from that point on it was just sort of this runaway brain train where intelligence and sexual selection and natural selection all help it grow larger and and to become uh more more better integrated and wired and just more intelligent in general so yeah i think that bipedalism is a very important part of understanding uh this connection between past present and future because that is the trait that defines our lineage a hominin is an upright walking human ancestor um and the fact that they are always reported as being bipedal. I think that alone is a big um, connector. It's something that should be considered in the context of this theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about this because I think this is one of the really important parts, although there are a lot of them. But we're going to take a short break. So those of you listening on the radio will hear some uh, commercials. The rest of you will hear a short musical interlude. And we'll be right back with Dr. Michael Masters talking about whether or not aliens could simply be us from the future. Hello and welcome back to Open Mind GFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we have with us uh, Professor of Biological Anthropology, Dr. Michael Masters, and we were talking about bipedalism and how important it was for the development of, of modern humans. And, uh, you know, one of the things you talked about is how when we stood up, essentially the effects on our head uh, made our heads our skulls bigger in the room for us, our brains to grow and become more intelligent. And you also mentioned in your lecture how uh, being smart is just a dominant trait. And like you just said, kind of went like a runaway train. That was a big deal. I mean, we being intelligent, you know, is something that continues on and we become more and more intelligent as time goes on because it's been a really important trait. However, uh, the bipedalism you argue is not something that uh, likely would happen 
on another planet or, or another species because it's not really kind of a, just standing up itself is not necessarily the best thing for, for a, a body. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I, I try to highlight, I talk about it in the book and also um, mentioned it in that uh, particular lecture at the International UFO Congress is, is what are referred to as the perils of being bipedal. Um, uh, there's um, really a lot of problems that we suffer from being upright walking hominins on this particular planet with 9.8 meters per second squared force of gravity, this acceleration constantly pulling down on us. And, and really, if you look across uh, mammals, we are really one of very few that are bipedal. Uh, a number of birds are, but as far as mammals, it's really not very common simply because it's problematic. And for us, there's this evolutionary trade-off where we suffer from knee problems and back problems and neck problems and, and flat feet and shin splints and hernias and complicated births and all kinds of other things, varicose veins, hemorrhoids. And, and those things are, are bad, they're negative traits, but in the context of the benefits of the intelligence that we have experienced in this growth of, of knowledge and culture and technology, all of those things have clearly outweighed the trade-offs, the costs of, of being bipedal on a, a planet of this size. And, and one argument I make in the context of astrobiology is that the vast majority of planets that have been found as part of the Kepler mission are much larger. It, it would seem that Earth is relatively small in comparison to other planets in the universe. So if that's the case, we wouldn't expect bipedalism to arise on other planets, even Earth-like exoplanets that are even a little bit larger than Earth simply because of how rare it is here and how many problems we suffer from as a result of it. So, uh, however, you know, it seems bipedalism was key to uh, humans becoming intelligent. Are there any other examples, uh, you know, in the, in the animal world that where a different trait or feature has allowed an animal's brain to increase in size? Yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of environmental pressures. Uh, look at dolphins. They're, mm -hmm. they're not bipedal. They don't, they don't even live on land, for God's sakes, but they're one of the smartest animals that, that there is on this planet. So, no, I, I don't. I don't try to advocate that bipedalism is a, a prerequisite for intelligence. That's not not really the argument that I'm making. Um, right. But, but it was what just, I was proposing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, just that it, it was very instrumental in shaping our own intelligence on this planet. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that all other organisms would have to have that. You could have any number of things take place, any sort of any number of evolutionary pathways on other planets that also imbued a species with intelligence with a very different physical form than our own. But in the context of this particular question, the fact that so many, almost all, I think it's safe to say, of these reported extraterrestrials, the reported being bipedal, I think that's important to consider in the context of this argument. But there's most certainly a lot of life out there in the universe and a lot of intelligent life, but they aren't likely to look like us or these bipedal descendants that are 
uh, commonly reported in instances of close encounters. So, so it's more about just connecting the dots with this particular phenomenon rather than saying that this had to have happened this specific way um, to get intelligence. Almost the opposite. I mean, it, it's, it, and I think it's a strong argument, you know, you're making, which is uh, it was a certain specific, uh, you know, factors that made us bipedal um, and that uh, the odds of another civilization or, or species that becomes intelligent going through the same process are so low Mm-hmm. That that's another indicator that, um, you know, kind of A equals B equals C. Hey, if they're bipedal and we're bipedal, it, yeah. it demonstrates another strong argument that it's us in the future. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's it's really unlikely that this would happen somewhere else. And, and not just because of the gravity thing uh, that I just mentioned. I think that's a very important thing to consider. But even beyond that, the different chemistries, the different distance from the sun, uh, the atmosphere, the chemical compositions of, of the planet itself, and, and the, the, the fact that we all arose with DNA, uh, RNA early on, and then DNA, and that all life forms today have those same, that same coding system, that same basic building block with any other um, nucleotide or with any other molecule, you could have a just entirely different structure of life. So yeah, there's a lot of things very specific to us and how we are now that happened throughout the last three and a half billion years of life on this planet, and especially throughout the last six million years of hominin evolution, it's just tremendously unlikely that anything similar to what we experienced would also happen on another planet at the same time, close enough to us that we'd find each other. Mm-hmm. So another, uh, I guess, influence on our, our features uh, that you talk about is uh, from domestication. And uh, now that may be a, a trait that could be more universal because it doesn't matter whether you're bipedal or not. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I've seen studies on, uh, you know, on foxes uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in Russia on this. You were probably aware of these studies. But yeah. maybe you could talk about that, what traits uh, domestication uh, influences. Um, yeah, there's there's actually quite a few, and you're right. That would be one of those traits that is, uh, it, it would be expected to lead to some similarities um, simply because it does happen the same way or in a similar way across various species. And you're right, foxes were one of the earliest examples. I, I talk about this in the book quite a lot and cite some of the research that you mentioned um, where where you take a wild animal and you start to domesticate, you start to select for pro-social traits and traits that um, are kind of associated with getting along well with each other and with other species, in this case, us. Um, and yeah, with foxes specifically, their ears would start to get floppy, their tails um, would, would change, it would start to bark, which isn't a characteristic that you see in the wild. Um, and, and really across various species, we see these same types of changes, morphological and behavioral traits, uh, taking place. And, and the same things happen with humans with self-domestication. A lot of people don't realize that we have domesticated ourselves 
Um, and especially since the Neolithic Revolution with the rise of agriculture and civilizations, we've had selection for pro-social behaviors where we get along with each other, we can live in larger groups. And, and there's, a, there's a number of things that, that happen that could connect us now with us in the future, and, and depigmentation is, is one of these. Um, just a, a retardation in the proliferation um, and migration from the neural crest cells of the melanoblasts, and those are the, the embryonic precursors to the melanocytes that form melanin in the skin and give us our darker skin tone. And that's one of these other traits associated with self-domestication and the domestication of other animals is that we see this depigmentation take place, and, and that could help explain the grayish hue in the skin of, of these grays specifically and other uh, ones that are described as being kind of pale skinned and frail. Uh, those could be an aspect of, of this domestication process with regard to us specifically, but we do see that in other species as well. So yeah, when we started to self domesticate um, and this is a pretty recent trend really if you think about it in the six million year history of hominins it's only in the last 10 to 12,000 years that these things have even been taking place but there has also been an acceleration in the rate of change in many of our morphological and behavioral features so this uh, the rise of civilizations and agriculture beginning 10 to 12,000 years ago is likely one of the things that helped accelerate this process forward. Mm -hmm. And some of those traits being like larger eyes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's what I did my PhD thesis on was mm. the, not the evolution of eyes because they don't preserve in the fossil record, but the evolution of the eye orbits um, and how those change in relation to an expanding neurocranium above and a retracting uh, face, nasomaxillary complex, and all of the lower facial features below, what happens to the eye orbits throughout this time. And, and even though we don't have the ability to study the eyes themselves, because like all soft tissue, they just rot away when an individual dies, um, because they are so tightly linked to the forebrain, um, in a in integration capacity, a, a morphological integration, um, as the brain and especially the the frontal lobe of the brain expands, we would expect our eyes to grow larger too. Um, they're thought to be linked because of what's known as pleiotropic gene control mechanisms, where um, the same gene controls for the development of different traits as we see them, and the eye grows directly out of the brain during early fetal ontogeny. So we would expect that those two things would grow larger in association with one another. One being selected for because of intelligence, the fact that the, um, the, the that part of our brain gives us our higher level thinking and the eye just kind of goes along for the ride. And in fact, a lot of my research looks at um, the, this evolutionary trend in the context of, of nearsightedness, juvenile onset myopia, and a, a larger eye is actually bad. It's w the main correlate for nearsightedness, that you have mm. an eye that's too large and it changes the focal length and uh, all kinds of other things, very esoteric things related to um, ophthalmology. But the, the larger eye is actually an evolutionary trade-off, I would argue, a negative thing resulting from uh, our, our brains growing larger and especially the development of the forebrain. So, yeah, I think I think we can really 
kind of dig deeper even, not just surface level stuff like bipedalism, but really look at the the minutiae, the details of our specific evolutionary history, things that have happened over the long term and more recently in the context of self-domestication and others, and really kind of see these patterns emerge that may connect our past to our future in in a long-term evolutionary sense. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of biological you know, reasons that to, that support your argument, but, uh, the physics, you've also found, you know, the physics of time travel, like you said, this isn't your area, but you've certainly looked into it quite a bit. And, uh, the physics of time travel is, I guess one of the questions would be, uh, cause it comes to the tech. Okay. The tech would be, oh, now we've, we've got the biology down. Will people develop or other civil, you know, species and other planets grow to be intelligent. Who knows? Likely. But the tech, can they get there from here? Uh, is that technology even possible? And so, but on your side, the, the tech question is time travel. Is that even possible? Could we even do that? Yeah, it's uh, obviously a, a very important part of the argument. And in the same way that we can see a sort of broad connection in our morphological form and the evolutionary changes that have taken place to get to where we are now and presumably into the future uh, to get to where we will be then. You can kind of see the same thing happen in the context of technology. Um, I live in a really unique place that has a a rich mining history um, in Butte, Montana. And I, I was on the board of the World Mining Museum until recently, and and just seeing all of these technologies that they used in the very recent past, only 7,500 years ago, and just how primitive they were and how far we've come in that period of time. Um, in a hundred years from now, people are going to look at what we're using for what are seemingly very uh, cutting-edge technological innovations and the things that we use and do they're going to seem so archaic in the context of where we are in a hundred years a thousand years um tens of thousands of years so so if, if we look at the rapid rate of change in our culture and technology and especially in the context of what is the the dominant understanding among physicists today that there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibit backward time travel at that point it just becomes a question of when we will do it when we'll figure out how to do it but also have developed the materials that will allow it because there's no doubt it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy uh, likely rotational force and the materials that we have today just aren't capable of withstanding those types of accelerations and uh, rotational forces. So, yeah, I think I think it would sell us short as a species to say that we'll never be able to do that. If if there's nothing that forbids it in the laws of physics, it's just it's shooting us in the foot to say that we'll never figure out how to do it. We've come so far. And there's no doubt in my mind that, that that's something that we'll eventually be able to figure out as well. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting that the conversation about, you know, highly advanced theoretical uh, methods to travel great distances are very tied to time and time yeah. manipulation and space time. And uh, it's almost as though the technologies develop at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And a, a lot of... Uh, 
the more precocious folks that listen to my lecture realize that that if we if we also need to travel at a high rate of speed to go deep into the past that would also give us the ability to check out other star systems potentially um and and one of the biggest problems with um traveling vast distances is that you instantly detach yourself from everyone that's alive at that time simply because of the effects of time dilation when you travel at a high rate of speed relative to the speed of light uh, as you're going out because you if you say you're traveling at the speed of light you see time stop on earth simply because that's those are all of the moments that took place as you're traveling with those beams of light that left earth but when you come back now instantly you're traveling through all of those periods of time at a tremendous rate of speed going backward against the light that had just been moving with you and by the time you get back everyone that was alive when you left has been long dead you've traveled thousands tens of thousands of years into the future and nobody's going to be willing to do that on any planet anywhere but with the ability to manipulate time as well it gets around that problem now as you're traveling back to your planet uh time's moving forward when you get there or as you're moving you can reverse time to come back to the same time as when you left and and that's a really uh important thing i think for people to understand is we would still have the ability to be uh inter interstellar uh if we also had the ability to time travel and one other important thing to keep in mind too is that it would also account for these tremendous g-forces as we observe them there, there's no way you could put a living creature inside these craft and then have them do what we perceive them doing to the rapid accelerations especially when they take off up into the sky it would crush any organism inside but again with the ability to manipulate space-time in and around that craft what we see is this tremendously rapid acceleration to them may simply be a slow gradual ascent simply because they're able to manipulate space-time uh in that localized reference frame hmm. uh you've also i you know pointed out that the technology for time travel uh where some of these theoretical ideas developed the the devices might look like a disc yeah yeah, that's um, in the same way that we could potentially tie together the morphological and cultural aspects of humans. If we look at the progression of our understanding of how we might create closed timelike curves, a very ubiquitous feature is that you have the rotation of a highly energetic and or massive, um, originally it was a a cylinder and then a ring model and then a disc yeah the the tipler cylinders in the 1970s uh physicist frank tipler describing an actual physical way in reality to create a time machine something that can create closed timelike curves and return to the past so yeah we have this common idiom in biology that form follows function and if we look at the form of these craft in the context of all of the solutions to Einstein's field equations are the vast majority of them uh, since publishing his papers on general relativity in, in 1915. If we look at the form of these craft in the context of that research, it sort of indicates that they may have the function of achieving backward time travel. So I think it's another important 
connection to, to, to consider in the context of this model. Mm-hmm. And then finally, because we're kind of running out of time here, one aspect that, that you talk about that I think is interesting also is if you take into account the people who uh, believe that they've had experiences with uh, extraterrestrial uh, beings, what they claim to be told uh, is interesting in that it kind of also fits your argument uh, with things like, you know, having an interest in uh, how we treat our planet um, Mm -hmm. and ourselves and, and, um, and also their interest in our DNA. Yeah. Yeah. They're interested in our DNA and also our nuclear technologies. Um, That's, that's certainly one that should also be considered. I mean, why would aliens from a different planet care what we do here on on this planet and if they're stakeholders in the future um if they have a vested interest in us not destroying the earth or blowing up a large segment of humanity um it it would definitely make sense in that context of them being us um but yeah a lot of contactees report being told um take care of your planet or yeah we're a lot of them that are continually abducted and their families uh, over long periods of time, which is a very common aspect of this phenomenon that the same person will be picked up, um, that they often describe having some sort of tracking device implanted in them, which would facilitate that at a, at a later date, uh, save some time as far as the researchers and what they're trying to do uh, to locate someone. But why they would pick up that same individual multiple times or other family members would kind of make sense in the context of DNA and uh, sampling gametes or collecting uh, DNA from different individuals, but with DNA that serves some purpose to them, that has some function in those more distant societies in the future. When we're discussing DNA, you also address the idea of hybrids, uh, of, you know, this uh, idea that whatever's coming here is kind of uh, creating hybrids with them and us. Um, but you point out that that is another indication that, you know, and, and for that to be possible, they would have to be very closely related to us. Yeah, they, they would have to be us. Um, based on the, the biological definition of what a species is, it, it takes two organisms that are able to reproduce, but importantly, reproduce viable offspring and the most common example is the donkey and the horse they can make a mule but that mule is infertile so therefore under this definition of species the the donkey and the horse are different they are different species so yeah if if people believe that hybridization is taking place then they would have to also acknowledge that these are indeed us they are in the hominid lineage um and close enough to us in time that they would be able to do that. Um, our, our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, again, we can't produce viable offspring with them, even though we share a very recent common ancestry in the sense of geologic time. So, yeah, I, I think the question of hybrids really needs to be considered in the context of this extratempestrial model because it's really the only way that could take place. You couldn't have an organism on a different planet evolve again to be so much like us but 
to also reproduce with us. That's just, it's nearly impossible that that would ever happen given the fact that we can't reproduce with anything else on this planet at this time, even though we share the same planet and uh, the same evolutionary history in the sense of the long-term evolution of life. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all so incredibly fascinating, and I feel like we barely were able even to scratch the surface here. So I'd highly, highly recommend that uh, people watch your lecture, because even though it's like an hour, you had an hour and 15 minutes, but you stopped at an hour, because you're, you, but you took some great questions uh, from the audience. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny that I, I wrote a book about time and then couldn't <laughs> keep time during my lecture that was um, funny. but no it worked out well because we did have some some question answer time so mm-hmm. yeah no, that was good and i mean because really i think that uh, this is a very important lecture and i'm going to be passing this around quite a bit because it makes a very strong argument for something that you know should be talked about more often is that you know this theory that it's us from the future which is you know i think in your arguing and I think you have a strong argument that it's a more likely uh, possibility than people from elsewhere. Yeah, but again, you know, I'd, I'd like to reiterate that, that they aren't mutually exclusive. That mm-hmm. this extraterrestrial model doesn't mean that there can't still be extraterrestrials. Um, mm-hmm. I just think at least the vast majority of reported encounters would seem to be us. Um, but but again, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't preclude any sort of interdimensionality. I mean, this this model is interdimensional. That's exactly what it is. But um, other theories should also be considered. Again, I, I try to be as inclusive as possible and, and not discount any any valid argument. I think we should all all be that way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great stuff. Uh, where where's the best place for people to get your book? Um, well, Amazon's always a good safe bet. Um, there, there's links through my website, uh, which is just a shortened version of the title. I'd fly obj, com. Um, there's Barnes and Noble, Kobo, there's an audio book available through Audible and there's links to all of those on the website, but it's, it's available pretty much anywhere you can buy books on the internet and in some bookstores and, um, other shops and things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's widely available, I guess you could say. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for your work. I mean, uh, it's just amazing how much work you've put into this and, and how much uh, you've touched upon here in the book and, and in your lecture. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Alejandro. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much to Michael Masters for being on the show. Be sure to check out his book, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary academic approach to the UFO phenomenon. And it certainly is. I think he's done an incredible job. Be sure to check out his video. It'll be up on the UFO Congress uh, website in the uh, videos on demand. So you'll be able to see that uh, on the front page of UFO Congress, the link to the videos on demand. Or you can also see that on the social media. And my my social media, you'll see links to that. So uh, you can watch his excellent lecture. If you're still watching DVDs, you can actually order those from the UFO Congress store as well. And his lecture was incredible. Uh, I haven't gotten through the whole book, but the book, you know... Uh, outlines this this theory in detail 
And really, we were only able to scratch the surface in this interview. The work he's done is outstanding. Uh, it's so detailed, and there are so many things that he explored that really fit the phenomena. I'm someone who I feel, you know, knows this phenomena fairly well. I've uh, been looking into it and writing about it for so long. And it's incredible to me, you know, how much fits with this theory, which I think is such a viable possibility and is something everybody should be considering. So check out his book. Uh, the URL uh, that we talked about is it, kind of weird. It's I-D-F-L-Y-O-B-J. So essentially, ID fly object. So uh, I-D-F-L-Y-O-B-J. You can probably just Google the name of his book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Academic Approach to the UFO Phenomena, and find his uh, links to his books at, as well. So really great stuff. Uh, it's been so nice, actually, to get to know him. I saw him at AlienCon and then again at the UFO Congress. He's very intelligent. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor. He actually plays music, too. We didn't even get how he's in a rock band. Uh, which is pretty cool, too. So a very cool dude. Uh, happy to meet him. Happy to have him on the show, finally. And uh, if you couldn't tell, I'm very enthusiastic about his work. So check it out. Otherwise, thank you to Martin Willis for joining us at the beginning of the show. That guy is such a character and always a lot of fun. Do check out his debate with Seth Shostek. Uh, about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. He did a great job, and he's been gearing up. I think this is the second uh, little debate that he's had with him, and uh, he's done a lot better. So he's learned. He's learned. And the third one, oh, my gosh, Martin's going to take him down so hard. But, uh, of course, I am a big fan of Seth Shostak. So, of course, I don't agree with all of his views when it comes to UFOs, but otherwise I do. And uh, if you do get a chance to see him, Go do it. He does a lot of talks all over the place, around the world, and uh, his talks are a lot of fun. He's very witty, and he makes an incredible argument. You can find some online, too, that, you know, there's got to be aliens out there somewhere and intelligent civilization. So uh, it's funny he makes that argument, but has, you know, no interest in the possibility that they may be visiting us already, which is a possibility. Who knows? Check it out, dude. There's some interesting stuff out there, as we all know. So uh, that's a lot of fun. Otherwise, let's see what else is going on. More and more videos are coming up from the UFO Congress as we have kind of gotten reestablished and uh, and gotten our feet under us after that uh, event, which is always such a large undertaking every year. So every really pretty much every day there are more videos from the conference getting out there uh, and they can all be purchased on DVD at the UFOcongress.com website. So do check all of those out. Otherwise, a lot of exciting stuff going on. Of course, Martin and I talked about the Army and Two of the Stars working together. Holy moly. And I think that, uh, you know, this isn't the end of some extraordinary revelations regarding all of this uh, and the government uh, that will be going on. So we live in extraordinary times when it comes to UFOs. And I like to pride myself on being one of those people at the cutting edge of bringing you all this information. So I think uh, that we've got a lot of fun stuff in the future ahead for us. So uh, I guess 
hang tight. I'm going to have some more shows in the future. Got a lot of great people to interview. So uh, we're going to have some fun on some uh, upcoming podcasts. But as usual, I want to thank Caleb Hanks for the excellent open and close music. You can find a link to his website. He's got a Patreon site and a uh, SoundCloud site where he puts up a lot of really, really cool music. But uh, on the openminds.tv site for the podcast, we have a link to his stuff. Do go check it out. Thank you to Systematics for the bumper music. And of course, thank you. Yeah, that's right. You, the listener, the one who's listening right now. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you know, you all inspire me to to keep this all going. It's so fun to share all of this great information and, and these incredible things happening right now. And of course, it, it would be all for naught if I didn't have any listeners. And I've got the best listeners. I met you, and I think I've told you all before, I meet you guys, and you're so smart, you're so good looking, you're, you got great smiles. You know, that's something unique about my listeners, too. I think you all have some wonderful smiles. So I love seeing them when I get a chance, and I'll let you know. Uh, the next event I'll be at so I can meet more of you. It's always a treat. But thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, adios muchachos. <laughs>